This is an ABC podcast. I look forward to leading a government that makes Australians proud. This election didn't just change a government, it was a green slide. Safe Liberal seats, two-term incumbents, independents. We need to go back to our values, our principles, look closely at what has happened. Our policies will be squarely aimed at the forgotten Australians in the suburbs across regional Australia. Hello and welcome to The Party Room. I'm Patricia Carvellis joining you from Wurundjeri country, which is actually in Melbourne. And I'm Fran Kelly on the Gadigal land of the Aora Nation in Sydney. And soon we're going to be joined by Michelle Grattan, Chief Political Correspondent with The Conversation and Professorial Fellow at the University of Canberra. But... First to the big political story of the week. Yet again, PK, it's international. Prime Minister Albanese continues his travels abroad. As we record this on a Thursday morning, he and Penny Wong are at the Pacific Islands Forum in Fiji. Yeah, it's been three years since the Pacific leaders actually held these face-to-face talks uh, because, of course, of the pandemic in Australia and New Zealand and the, and a lot of those Pacific countries were very hardline about trying to make sure that COVID didn't get into the country. So this is a very significant meeting in that sense, particularly given we know face-to-face meetings like this are very important, well, broadly in all international affairs, but I think in the Pacific particularly, like really building relationships, which we have not been able to do to the extent we, we, we used to. It's also very important, of course, for national security from a security perspective, because we know how how eager Labor has been to position Australia as the preferred security partner for Pacific Island nations. And rebuilding relations in the region was a huge part, really, of their election pitch. It was unusually part of the election campaign when this Solomons-China deal really landed right smack bang in the middle of a political uh, election campaign, which really elevated these issues in a way that doesn't usually happen. Now, after China signed that security pact with the Solomons in the middle of that election campaign, it put Pacific Island relations front and centre. And we've seen Foreign Minister Penny Wong visiting Pacific island nations multiple times since they were elected and uh, nearly two months ago now. This meeting has been key. Look, we won't be able to report back to you all of the recommendations or the communiques because that will happen later. But we know that at this stage, Fran, uh, that Anthony Albanese has so far had a successful meeting with the Solomon Islands Prime Minister. He even got a hug, Fran. So obviously <laughs> the, the the optics were all good. That's true. The um, Solomon Islands Prime Minister, what was it he said? I need a hug. So there you go. That's, uh, Don't that's, we all? That's kind of the whole vibe at the Pacific Islands Forum. Um, that's right. Look, it's an important it's an important meeting because we've talked about it before, and you alluded to it there. Battle for power is playing out in the Pacific. Australia is trying to stay on top as the security partner of choice in the Pacific as a rising China emerges, and of course China is emerging with a lot of money and a lot of offers on the table. It's already invested billions in the Pacific region. So this is this is what's going on here. When China signed that Solomon's Pact during our election, the US really sat up and took notice. We had Kirk Campbell arrive in the Solomons. Now at the Pacific Island Forum, the US has announced this renewed Pacific engagement in that unprecedented address to the forum from the US Vice President, Kamala Harris. She was given a spot at the talks, which is unusual in itself. And in that video address, she urged unity. She promised a deepening US presence in the Pacific. And she acknowledged, I think this was really important, that America hadn't done enough in recent times. We recognise that in recent years, the Pacific Islands may not have received the diplomatic attention and support that you deserve. So today I am here 
to tell you directly, we are going to change that. At a time when we see bad actors seeking to undermine the rules-based order, we must stand united. We must remind ourselves that upholding a system of laws, institutions, and common understandings, this is how we ensure stability. That's U.S. Vice President Kamala Harris speaking there at the Pacific Islands Forum. Now, stability and prosperity. It was a very strong message from Kamala Harris to the Pacific, wasn't it, Fran? Well, it was a strong message. And as I said, it was accompanied by some strong spending too, uh, and a promise to set up two new embassies, one in Tonga and one in Kiribati, which is interesting because Kiribati has decided to absent itself from the Pacific Island Forums as a grouping at the moment. They say this is about the power play that was going on, but a lot of people are wondering whether this is really because they're in the China camp already. The US has also promised to appoint a special envoy to the Pacific for the first time ever. They're reintroducing Peace Corps volunteers. Big aid money is being invested over the next 10 years. So all about re-engaging in the Pacific region as a counter to Chinese influence, which has been steadily growing over the past years. So the US late to the party, despite its historic links with the Pacific, but it was there with money on the table. And that kind of eating humble pie message we heard there from Kamala Harris. Yeah. And I spoke to Prime Minister Anthony Albanese just before he actually flew to Fiji, like literally minutes before, and he welcomed it, said that he talked about this with Joe Biden when he went to the Quad, which he did, of course, as soon as he was elected, that he was happy that America and Australia were very much on the same page in the region. And again, reinforcing that idea with with support from Australia and, of course, the US as well, that the idea of no strings being attached, you know, hint, hint, nudge, nudge, that China has strings, that it that support and being the preferred partner, as Australia likes to be, comes with no strings. Look, Fran, let's just put a pivot to an issue that has been absolutely dominating in Australia, and so it should. COVID has emerged as a major issue again for all of us. (sighs) Yes, we are opened up, but um, we are now on the cusp of another wave, a, a serious, serious wave, the health minister warning that we will have millions of people infected in coming weeks and months. Uh, We're on the cusp of this wave. They're they're sounding the alarm about what's coming our way and the measures we currently have in place to deal with it. We're having a big discussion about them. So here we are again. Infection rates on the rise. Three states have already reduced the reinfection window from 12 weeks down to four. So I'm already vulnerable to catching it again. Spewing! (laughs) And this has all come as the federal government has significantly cut back on its pandemic support claiming the support payments had to come to an end, but also more uh, crucially, and I find this very interesting, doing the old, the last government plan for them to be cut. So we're just, you know, it's not really our decision. I wonder how long that will last. Here's the Prime Minister talking about the end of free rapid antigen tests for concession holders on breakfast yesterday. Well, to be very clear, uh, my government has not made this decision. This is a decision that was inherited from the former government and state governments and and state governments, which made that decision. Well, we inherited a a range of uh, positions from the former government and we also inherited a trillion dollars of debt. That last line, the trillion dollars in debt is a key part of this, saying, look, you know, there's too much debt. What are we going to do? Now, clearly deflecting responsibility there. He did another interview. We're recording this Thursday morning on television this morning and again arguing this is an inherited decision. I don't know what you think, Fran, but I don't know how long the inherited decision 
line works. Let me give you an example of why it doesn't for me, Fran. Did they inherit the uh, emissions reduction targets of the previous government? I don't think they inherited those. They've changed that. Um, They've changed other things. It doesn't really make sense to argue that, does it? It's a completely bogus argument and I would say a short-sighted argument, PK. I mean, it's true that the the Morrison government had slated these pandemic payments would end on a certain date, but they didn't know if this wave was coming at us, that we were about to have millions of people infected when they set that date. I mean, this COVID virus isn't synchronised with Australian government budget timetables. It's got a mind of its own. It's back. The government of the day has to deal with that, anticipate that, respond to that. You can't just say oh, well, the old government had this date, so there's nothing we can do. That is not true. If our hospitals are about to face serious overcrowding again, which they are, surely the urgent and the prudent response from the government is to bring in measures to try and slow the spread, which would include, you would think, giving people incentives to stay home from work when they are sick. Hello, all those casual workers who they either make Well, they're legally required to. Well, they're legally required to. And morally, they have to make a decision do I feed my family? Do I pay my rent? Or do I stay at home and do the right thing? You know, this notion of cutting COVID payment to casual workers to make sure they don't just soldier on and spread the virus as the virus is stepping up again, it's just a no-brainer to me. So also include making it easier, not harder for people to get tested, right? So keeping in place those free rat tests for concession holders. I understand the budget is under pressure. The new government has inherited those pressures, but these are short-sighted measures. You know, as the health minister, Mark Butler, warns us of this next wave, he's urging people to stay home to work if they can in this whole new living with COVID vibe, stay home and isolate if we are sick. And yet at the same time, we're making it more expensive for people to get tested and then to isolate. And it directly undercuts the messaging. I don't understand it. It's short-sighted. There is improvements to the budget coming from other directions. The high resource payments, for instance, are going to bump up the budget bottom line. So there will be a little bit of extra money around. I get the whole, you know, we are not going to be spending um, vibe of this new government, but this is an exception. This is a health crisis and uh, the government is giving out mixed messages at a time when it needs people to really, really figure out what's the right lever to pull here in their own lives and for the rest, the safety of the whole community. I interviewed the aged care minister, Annika Wells, and she outlined the the plan that she will un- unveil for all aged care sector homes and so forth because the, obviously the wave's coming and it's growing, right? And there are lots of, lots of deaths. They will increase. Now, I, I put all of this to her because she gave a speech earlier this year when the Morrison government was in power about free rats. She said the difference is now that when they were arguing for the free rapid antigen tests earlier as the opposition, it was a time when the prices were through the roof for rapid antigen tests, Fran. It was a time when uh, people are in long lines to get PCR tests. Uh, There wasn't the stock available in the country. Things were different, right? And now the stocks are here. Uh, There aren't those long lines. You can go and get a free PCR test, for instance, or go and then they give you the free rapid tests when you turn up to get a PCR, that there are other mechanisms mechanisms for testing yourself. What do you make of that argument? Because I thought, well, are things different? Is she right? Well, things are different in that there's not a shortage of rat tests for a start. I mean, I remember back in January, I was one of those people who lined up for four hours in, in my car waiting to get a PCR test because you had to have that to go into state. I, I, I drove around to seven different chemists in my area looking for rat tests and couldn't find any. So things are obviously different. There was price gouging. Now the average rat test is $8, but some are higher than that. And some of those ones for kids are, are significantly higher than that. Uh, I think I saw someone pay for 
$15 the other day for one. Um, so these are still impediments. And yes, it's easier, but this wave is coming. And what you need to do is take out every possible hurdle that would be in the way of someone deciding whether to get a rat test or not. And then of deciding whether to tell anyone what that rat test said or not, and that goes back to the COVID payments. So this is what you'd think uh, health experts would be um, urging the government to do. I think it is what health experts are urging the government to do, even if they extend it until the end of winter, until the end of this next wave. That wouldn't cost much. Not quite sure why the government's being so sort of bloody-minded about this. I suspect they will change because I just can't see why at this point any government would uh, want to be seen to be putting hurdles in the way of the best possible public health response to an impending surge in this pandemic. There is one reason, and I want to bring in our guests on this, but just, just to make the point. There is some contradictory views in the community about COVID now. People are desperate for it to move on. And... But it's not moving on. That's the point. <laughs> oh, I know it. I I'm know desperate it. for it to move on too, but it's not. But so they, I think they're making a calculation that perhaps maybe community sentiment is changing. I'm not sure that when we, if we do see these millions of cases that are predicted, if we do see that, that people will feel quite the same way or that when you go to your cafe and you can't get in, or like I'm just giving an example, I'm not saying that's the most important thing, but, and there are no workers because it's the workforce shortage consequence. I don't know if people are going to keep feeling like <laughs> that that reality is the case. Should we bring our guest in? Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> Michelle Grattan, Chief Political Correspondent with The Conversation. Welcome to The Party Room. Hi, good to be with you both. Hi, Michelle. It's fantastic to have you on the party room. I want to kick off on this job summit, which the government has now told us will be in September. 100 leaders from business and the unions are going to come together and attempt to overhaul the skills and employment system and try and boost productivity. Anthony Albanese promised during the election campaign he would be a leader in the hawk keating mode. And this is absolutely a leaf straight out of the Bob Hawke playbook. You were at Bob Hawke's economic summit back in 1983, Michelle, reporting on it. Did it work then and could it work now to lift productivity? I think it did work then in terms of uh, getting attention on the main economic issues. Now, it was a broader summit, a different summit to this one in the sense that it was about the economy. It was also about bedding in the accord which the government had with the unions. And of course, that accord was absolutely critical to economic reform over the next decade. I think it is going to be quite difficult, though, to get as much bang for the buck as it were out of this summit. Uh, some people have said that Anthony Albanese is, is no Bob Hawke. And without uh, being unduly critical of Albanese. I think that is true. I think that Bob Hawke had a very special leadership presence. And of course, it was at its height at that uh, early stage of his prime ministership. And also, this summit is only half as long as the four-day one in 1983, which did allow for more penetration of issues. And I think also the atmosphere was different in those days. The summit was a really, really big deal. Mm. And the people there were 
entertained at the lodge and at government house. You had uh, really big business figures making contributions. You had a lot of authority in the union movement. And of course, the union movement has been so much diminished since then because it only covers a fraction of the workers that it did in those days. One interesting contrast, Fran, is uh, that at that summit, you had the discussion about a centralised wage system. One of the themes of this summit will be improving and putting more life into the decentralised wage system that we now have. So you see how some of the issues have dramatically changed. They certainly have, and a, and a dramatically different industrial relations system that we now live with. And, and there were lots of reforms that had to happen back then. I think there was a lot more political consensus too across the parties. One major focus, though, of this new summit, the one we're having in September, will be enterprise bargaining. Now, all parties agree, including the government, that it's broken. That doesn't mean that they agree on how to fix it. Sally McManus, the ACTU secretary, was out this week sort of arguing, for instance, that employers shouldn't be able to unilaterally cancel agreements and and walk away from agreements. That's one thing she thinks should happen straight away. Do you think they can get to a consensus on fixing enterprise bargaining to fix wages, to fix productivity, all of that? They can probably get to a consensus that it needs to be fixed, but actually working out the detail is uh, really, really difficult. And what we saw under the Morrison government was an attempt to reach consensus and a limited agreement. And then, of course, when the legislation was brought in, uh, everything really uh, fell apart. Uh, Parties said that this didn't represent Uh, what they'd been talking about or agreed on, and practically nothing got through. So this is a very, very complex area. I think that probably the Labor government has much more of a chance of getting agreement than the Morrison government, but nevertheless, it's going to be a rocky road. Uh, Michelle, given your experience there and given where we're at now, and yes, we've got a different IR system, of course, in that time, but what might, what could, what should, come out of a summit like this today. Remember, we all remember Kevin Rudd had his 2020 summit. Remember when he was elected, it was excess in in terms of the breadth of ideas that people gathered, but not necessarily in what it led to. What needs to happen and what does the government think and what do all the players think needs to happen? Well, firstly, I'd say that there was a big contrast between the Rudd summit and the Hawke one. The Hawke one was uh, narrowly focused, although uh, broad in the sense of being all about the the broad economy, the Rudd one was give us your ideas. And many people would say that bugger all came out of the Rudd summit in terms of actual things that happened. Well, a lot of of it was around climate for a start and Uh, much of that hasn't happened at all. Lots of good ideas might have come out of it, but they didn't go very far. And of course, we know that the big thing coming out of it, or one of the big things, was the push for tax reform led to the Henry Report. Very worthy, but what happened to that in the end? So I think that uh, we will see, if this summit is a success, agreement on the problems and also uh, what is needed is some ideas uh, for taking forward the the issues and getting solutions. what the government needs is momentum on key issues. It won't necessarily reach 
conclusions and a lot of those of course will have to wait for the white paper that follows the summit and is due in about a year but uh, they've also left the way open for some ideas to go into the budget now the plan may be and we don't know this but the plan may be for the government actually to have some ideas and somehow feed those into yeah. the summit mm. and then produce them in the budget. That might be the, the, the cunning plot here. Certainly around yeah. skills, I would think. I mean, there's an urgent investment in skills and alignment in skills that needs to be made. It's such a tough area to do it. And to, of course, you can't do it quickly, but there is urgent action needed. That's for sure. And in, in some areas, really, uh, you don't need a summit to tell you what has to be done. Yep. For example, if you're trying to get in uh, more workers and the acute labour shortage is at the, the centre of many of the problems at the moment, then you know that you need to speed up the resumption of migration uh, and that requires a, a better visa processing system. But how do you overcome the logjam that's in that system at the moment. Mm. Yep. Now, let's park this issue, even though it's very important, but we're going to get more details over coming weeks and we'll, we'll of course, um, be talking about it probably many times again. But we discussed at the beginning of the podcast, just Fran and I, Michelle, the government's COVID response, which is, I think, one of the emerging issues and real challenge for them right now um, and the inadequacies of their response so far. Around a quarter of a million uh, Australians officially have the virus. Experts are predicting millions in in coming weeks. The health minister warning about that, saying that you should consider staying at home uh, in terms of working from home. Uh, business isn't very happy with that position, but clearly this is now becoming a very serious wave that uh, governments are kind of grappling with and in different ways. But at the same time, the Albanese government is sticking to this view that it has to end pandemic payments, including pandemic leave payments, uh, free rat tests, which we've discussed. I know you've done an extended podcast with Mark Butler, who's the health minister. What's your view on the way they're tackling this? It's obviously uh, an immense problem. And Mark Butler's been saying it's going to get worse. We're going to have uh, more cases, more hospitalisations over the next few weeks. I think that the government is taking the view that the community has moved on from the pandemic, even though the pandemic hasn't moved on from the community. And while Undoubtedly, the Labor government has stepped up efforts since the election to, uh, for example, make uh, the fourth doses more widely available for people to get vaccinated, uh, talk about antivirals, have a stock take of vaccination supplies. Nevertheless, I think that its view is that the community's tolerance for some measures for really tough restrictions has passed. And of course, in that situation, uh, the problem is that uh, if people say we don't agree with those restrictions, you get much more disobedience. And so 
how do you enforce the restrictions? The other point I would make, of course, that a lot of the restrictions are in fact state matters rather than federal matters. And you've got an election in Victoria, and I think that's in part shaping the attitude there. And you've got uh, an election early next year in New South Wales. So uh, you do have a, a mismatch between the incredibly serious situation that we're now in. And just think if we were having this number of deaths, I think it's about 45 day and it was 2020, uh, what our attitude yeah. would be. But you have this mismatch between that situation and what the bulk of the community are thinking. Not all the community, of course, but many people and, and many younger people who think, well, I'm not going to be too much affected by this. Well, that's true. But if millions are going to get infected, and which means a higher percentage will be quite affected um, because, you know, all of those who've had it understand it's not nothing. It can be not nothing, this, this virus. Um, maybe that attitude will change. And, you know, Michelle, we're not, we're not necessarily talking about the government's response to tougher restrictions. We're talking about the, the Federal Health Minister, Mark Butler, basically saying, oh, well, you know, we're going to phase out the COVID pandemic payments and we're going to phase out the free rat test for concession holders because the old government always had that deadline in place and that's all that we're doing is just going along with that. Well, sure, but it begs the question of what's the right policy now and budget pressures, fair enough, this government's trying to keep to a policy of no new spending, but in a pandemic, fixed rules are useless and can be counterproductive, aren't they? And does this come into that class? And how long does government, how long can Labor really just keep saying, oh, well, this is the old government's policy, we're just doing that? You know, they're running out of time on that. Well, I did ask uh, Mark Butler what uh, the attitude would have been if Labor was still in opposition and, and that payment was coming to uh, uh, an end under a continued Morrison government. And I think he said, well, that's that's hypothetical. <laughs> I think we know, though. Everyone knows what they'd be saying. Yeah, everyone They would that. be screaming about all of this. Uh, they yes. just would. That's right. And a lot, in a lot of uh, these issues, Patricia, it depends where you're sitting at the moment. And well, of for course... instance, Anna Rustin, the Shadow Health Minister, right, she's criticising the government ending payments for those isolating and subsidising rats for the most vulnerable. Yet it was her government's policy. Absolutely. And it does make you very cynical about politicians that they really will uh, say anything depending on their circumstances at the time. Oh, it, it, it's exactly what this does. And after an election where, Michelle, there was kind of this new optimism about politics, there's that danger too, isn't it? Beyond just how we're managing COVID, which is obviously the primary concern, it does kind of looks rather cynical, doesn't it? You just swap sides and then you yell about the payments ending, but then if you're in charge, you want the, all payments to end. I mean, how depressing. Well, it is. Uh, let's not be uh, too pessimistic about politics. And <laughs> Sorry, different shoes are on different feet now. Uh, just weeks in, but um, it, yes, it, it does make people somewhat cynical if they're attending uh, to these issues and, and particularly if they're affected by these issues. It will be interesting. We have Parliament coming back uh, at the end of the month. It'll be interesting to see whether the the new mood that you referred to there is uh, reflected in the Parliament or whether people fall into same old, same old uh, behaviour very quickly. Yeah, you're right, Michelle. Let's hope that they don't. Let's hope that doesn't happen. And that's that goes for us too. Um, Michelle, the former Prime Minister Scott Morrison, he's giving his first speech since he lost the election. He's addressing the Asian Leadership Conference in Seoul. 
His takeout of the election loss, uh, according to the drop we've seen so far, uh, is that the pandemic cost him government, or in his words, he took a hit for the mission. Uh, that's a quote in the creation of the National Cabinet and trying to manage the Federation during the crisis. But, Michelle, I don't think the pandemic was necessarily even the key reason for Scott Morrison's loss, was it? I mean, was this a referendum? Was the last election a referendum on the pandemic in the end? Well, a couple of things on this. We did see in the earlier stage of the pandemic that uh, pandemic management tended to protect governments. And then this year we saw a change and the first uh, government to fall, of course, was the South Australian government, which hadn't done badly at all in managing the pandemic. On Scott Morrison's performance, I think that in terms of pandemic management, it was very mixed. I think Australia did pretty well in in the earlier stages. And of course, closing the borders quickly, the national borders was absolutely key to that. But then, of course, there were a whole lot of uh, problems with the vaccine rollout and quarantine problems, not all the federal government's fault. But I think that uh, people did mark the government down for their lapses in management, but I think it was the only one factor in the election defeat uh, for the Morrison government. Uh, character became a big issue. Yeah. The Prime Minister's character, the whole question of his uh, integrity, uh, the integrity issue more widely in certain electorates, in the Teal electorates, I think that uh, cost votes. And Climate change was uh, also a significant issue, especially in those electorates, and the lack of any uh, great vision for the future. So I think it was a mixture of things. I think that's right. I actually spoke to Simon Birmingham, who's now the Shadow Foreign Minister, and he said in WA he thought the pandemic was the dominant issue. Obviously, you saw that huge response there and how many seats were lost, but he said in other places across the country, he doesn't think it was the dominant issue. So, you know... um, Obviously, there were cumulative factors going on there. Character, I think you are dead right, had a huge impact. Look, we began the podcast, Michelle, discussing the Pacific Islands Forum, and I want to end there, if we can, with our conversation with you and one particular part of this. So we're saying this is the first time we've seen in a couple of years the Pacific Islands Forum be held. Anthony Albanese is there. We're recording this on a Thursday morning, so more will happen by the time people might hear this podcast. But... Anthony Albanese has said that overwhelmingly climate change is the dominant issue and he's been spruiking his government's 43% emissions reduction by 2030. Obviously, Pacific Island nations want more, but this is is this enough of a down payment to kind of create a new sense of consensus in the region with Australia? I think that uh, it's a big plus and uh, obviously welcomed by those uh, countries. But it was interesting that they were saying, please, please uh, up the uh, ambition. That was uh, quite significant and and maybe a bit unexpected. Uh, In terms of the Pacific generally, I think you're seeing real strains within the forum clearly uh, that are issues not to do with Australia and and Australia has 
only a very limited uh, uh, clout in relation to them and it can only stress the benefits of unity. And I think that uh, the whole question of these countries, the various countries' relationship with China is going to be a, a continuing issue over the coming months and years, uh, whatever is, is said uh, and, and done now. And of course, we have seen uh, the quite important American step up in the Pacific uh, announced during this week. And that's obviously all to do with China. But Michelle, just on climate, we mentioned this before on the, on the party room, the increased target, the 2030 target has been an entree card that's worked very well for Anthony Albanese internationally. But that's the easy part, getting there, beating up a transition to a zero carbon economy. That's the hard part. The Albanese government also has a target of 82% of electricity generated by 2030 will be renewable. That's the tough bit. The Morrison government had the technology roadmap, which I don't know, always seemed to me to be a recipe for delay rather than action. But these deadlines are bearing down on us now. Hard decisions are going to be made. Big money is going to have to be spent. If Labor's going to fulfil this promise, you know, is it, how much time does it have to, to prove itself here? Well, it doesn't have a lot of time, obviously, and, and the, uh, the initial crunch point comes in less than a decade, uh, 2030. And I do think that the debate now is needing to turn to these specifics. Obviously, the the government uh, can say, well, we've got a much better policy and uh, people overwhelmingly, I think, uh, accept that. But it's going to be a very... Um, difficult road. And as you say, this question of uh, investment, well, how is that uh, actually going? To what extent is the the private sector going to respond quickly enough? How much government money is going to be needed? And so I and, think... And also just skills, I mean, skill shortages. We're already see, seeing with the infrastructure rollout that's that's going on at the moment across the country, sort of bumping up against um, skill shortages and the expertise to this whole area of building transmission lines, for instance. We just don't have the skilled personnel at the moment, I wouldn't think, in the country to do it at the scale we're talking about. Well, that's right. And that brings us back to the point about migration that we were mentioning earlier and getting the right people and, and attracting them here and uh, getting the uh, process for uh, approving them, visas uh, straightened out. And also there's the question of, of what is this going to cost consumers? Now, you'll remember in Labor's policy, they said it would be a, a saving eventually of a few hundred dollars in your power bill. Well, I think that's now perhaps uh, problematic. But anyway, it was always uh, well into the future. And I think uh, what we're going to see is that it's going to be a transition that consumers will have to pay more for. Now, this, that is necessary, but not going to be necessarily very uh, acceptable at a time when we've got higher prices in a whole lot of areas and rising interest rates and people feeling under pressure. Yes, and they certainly do. Michelle, thanks for letting us pick your brain and also, you know, your long reporting on these areas, especially, which I just loved, I know Fran did too, just that sense of history uh, about being in the room, being watching the, the accord being drawn up. I'm loving this. Thank you so much for coming in. And thanks for reminding us to stay optimistic, Michelle. Always good. <laughs> Always good. I'll, I'll give it a red hot go. See you, Michelle. <laughs> Thank you both. See you, Michelle. Questions without notice. The Leader of the Opposition. Thank you, and, and I'm pleased the question time at least is happening, Mr Speaker. Yeah. 
The bells are ringing and it means it's time for question time. We've been a while since the real question time's been on. And this it's week's coming, question... Though. It's coming and I'm excited. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see everyone changing and what's it going to look like with the teal independence and all of that. Anyway, I digress. Um, this week's question comes from Lisa from Newcastle who writes... Hey, Fran and PK, love the podcast and joining you for the party every week. With the new wave of COVID imminent, will the Albanese federal government and the state premiers find themselves forced to bring back COVID measures and mask mandates to help stop the spread? Or will they stick to their approach of letting it rip despite the increasing pressure on hospitals? Look, we've already kind of half approached this topic in the podcast, but in terms of whether they'll bring back any of that, Fran, we'll... Again, I don't know, community sentiments shifting. What do you think? Well, thanks, Lisa. Thanks for for listening. Um, We love that. Look, uh, yeah, we've discussed it a bit, haven't we? I think Mm. there will be community pressure on. There's certainly pressure from the um, health experts. Do I think governments are going to bring in widespread mask mandates? No. But if the numbers are such that the hospitals are overwhelmed, they will have to bring back some of these responses. So I suspect, as, as we've said, I think they will make concessions around rat tests probably. I'm not sure about pandemic payments, but I think they should at least extend them until the end of winter and they might come up with some kind of compromise like that. In terms of masks, I think they might reintroduce mandates for some sectors. It's already there. They're, they're still there in place, though most of us seem to have forgot it in public transport and aged care homes. Will they bring them back into hospitality settings? At the very least, there will be strong urgings, I think, from premiers and chief ministers for people to wear masks in public places. I think all governments are shy of mandates, as you mentioned earlier, PK, but I think there will be strong messaging from our health experts and hopefully our governments for masks. I mean, it's the simplest measure. It's the most effective measure. Uh, Masks are everywhere. In almost any building you go into, there are masks available if you don't have your own. They're relatively cheap to get now. Um, I think for our own safety, if the even even if it comes down to an effective, and I use that word um, strongly because we've had a lot of communication campaigns that have been completely ineffective in my view, but if we could get an effective communication strategy, which the government is working on around COVID and around how to how to live with COVID, and it includes an urging to wear a mask in public places, I think that is essential and it could bear fruit. Most of us have the hang of it, but a lot of people seem to be very against the whole mandate idea. But I reckon at the level of mask wearing, we will see some stronger urgings at, at the very least. Mm, I, I think you're right, uh, especially if, if these predictions of cases become a reality. Well, I mean, um, if the hospitals are overrun, they have to do something, right? We can't have that. We can't have not enough places in our hospitals to cope with the demand. So no, let's just, see where we can get to before that to hopefully head off that happening. And bear a thought, like I'm sure many people are listening and some of you are already in this category, but of people, including like friends of mine who work in hospitals, how tiring. Oh, they're exhausted. They are exhausted already. They are pushed already. The flu, I don't know if epidemic is quite the right word, but there's outbreak of flu that is already taxing the hospitals. And as you say, this is a workplace, a workforce that is for the last few years has been pushed beyond its limits. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So shout out to all of the health workers listening and, exactly. and the other people, the teachers and others who have been dealing with the shortages. And oh, It's really hard at the moment. Don't forget to send your questions in. We like getting them and you can tweet us using the hashtag The Party Room or email your questions to thepartyroom at abc.net.au. And remember to follow us, The Party Room, on the ABC Listen app so you never miss an episode. It's fantastic, the ABC Listen app. We're always spooking it, but that's because we know it's really good. All right. That's it for The Party Room this week. Lovely to be back with with you, Fran. Yeah, see you next week. See you, PK. See you, Fran.